I'm Amanda. And I'm Mike. And this, this is Saturday, Saturday Morning, Morning Cereal. Hello, everyone, and happy November. I hope you all had a great Halloween. Today, we have a very exciting episode, and Mike, when I say the word PBS Kids, what are some shows that come to your mind? Um, let's see, uh, Big Comfy Couch, uh, Mattress School Bus, Mr. Rogers, Sesame Street, uh, Barney. Funny you should say Barney the Dinosaur because that is exactly the topic of today's episode. Barney was a part of my life, my siblings' life, and so many other kids in the 90s. The documentary on Hulu titled I Love You, You Hate Me really opened up our eyes on controversy and hate surrounding the kids' show, Barney. Barney displays love, diversity, goodness, and innocence wholly, but the documentary shed some light on how an apathetic society rejected his messages. Today, I am very excited to introduce to you guys Larry Rifkin, with whom was a huge part in bringing Barney onto PBS. Larry Rifkin is best known for his nearly 30 years as programming chief for Connecticut Public Television. Under his leadership, CPTV amassed over 50 Emmy Awards in the Boston New England competition. In 2006, he was inducted into the Boston New England Silver Circle, the regional television equivalent of a Lifetime Achievement Award. He is currently the host of American Trends podcast, where he looks at changes in our society and our politics. Rifkin appears in the Barney documentary, I Love You, You Hate Me, on Peacock TV. His new book is No Dead Air, Career Reflections from the TV Executive Who Saved Barney the Dinosaur from Extinction. The initial rollout of the book was in Connecticut, where he still lives, and included over 20 book talks, where he articulated his ideas passionately. A new chapter was added recently, focusing on the societal impact of Barney. Learn more at LarryRifkin.net. So let's make a very warm welcome to Larry. And Larry, welcome to Saturday Morning Serial. We really appreciate your time being with us. Oh, thank you very much, Amanda and Mike. It's a pleasure to be here, and I know we're going to have some fun. Yes, so excited. Before we begin, can you tell our viewers where you can find your podcast and a little about your new book? Sure. Uh, I've got the new book, No Dead Air, and you can check that out if you go to LarryRifkin.net. It's R-I-F as in Frank, K-I-N. And the, my podcast is called americatrendspodcast.com. And I deal with social and political trends in the country, uh, really incredible guests and a serious conversation about what's happening in America, but looking with the long view in mind, uh, not at the daily scrum. And so uh, that's, uh, those are two places. And if you want to find me on Facebook, uh, at Trends Podcast, or on Twitter, at Trends Podcast, that will get you there. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. And guys, please check him out. Check out his book, especially like myself. I'm a media studies major. So I'm very much attuned to like broadcast and just the work and dedication that goes into it. So if you're interested in that stuff, please, please give his book a read. Um, so Larry, we're going to start asking you some questions. Okay. Um, it, some of these now that we're first going to ask you pertain to Barney the dinosaur, mm -hmm. and how um, that new Peacock documentary came out, 
the I love you, you hate me. Yes. Um, so this kind of runs in conjunction with that. So first of all, how did you discover Barney? Um, your then four-year-old daughter, Leora, mm-hmm. um, th- th- she had a part of it. Um, and how did you bring it to national prominence on PBS? Okay, well, Barney, of course, became a huge phenomenon, but it was never really intentional. There were so many pieces along the way that were really fortuitous. One, that Cheryl Leach and Kathy Parker and Dennis DeShazer, who really built this home video property, if you will, in Dallas, Texas, or in those environs, and the fact that they were able to distribute and market Uh, some of these VHS, not even DVDs at the time, we're talking about VHS tapes around the country. And one of them happened to find its way to a lower shelf at the Prospect Video Store in Prospect, Connecticut, where I live. And it happened to fall into the welcoming arms of a four-year-old daughter, Leora Rifkin, at a time when PBS was looking for new children's properties to accent and to extend the value of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and Sesame Street. And Connecticut Public Television, where I was the executive vice president for programming, we were not thinking that we would get involved in the hunt for this new children's property because we really weren't players in that game. And Amanda and Mike, you have to recognize that the holy grail of public television is really its children's programming. I mean, that's what gives it so much support in Congress, and that's what uh, people identify us with. And of course, Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers were really the gold standard at the time, but we didn't have a lot of other programming for young children. So when my daughter found that video and we took it home, and I had to keep rewinding it at the time, And she was looking at it with such interest, such curiosity, and she seemed to love it in a way that I had never seen her love another children's property before, because she was not a videophile. She was somebody who would casually watch a show here and there, but this one really caught her attention. So let's go back to Super Bowl Sunday, 1991. And I said, well, sure, you can watch that, and I'll repeat it and repeat it. And finally, I sat down to see what was so fascinating to her. And what I saw, even though the production values at the time were not to the standard that PBS ultimately required and that we were able to rise to in the course of developing the first 30 episodes of Barney and Friends, at that time, it was Barney and the Backyard Gang. And she picked out A Day at the Beach. And it's a classic in its own right at this moment in time. But it was very nascent. It was very early developmental. But what I saw was a wonderful character in the form of Barney. And as I like to say, a little bit less neurotic than Big Bird. Uh, And Barney leading the action. The children having such an important role in moving the storyline along. The underpinning of a wonderful musical score, really, to keep it moving, and lots of uses of color. And at that time, the colors were, well, not what they later became, which were vivid and bold, but there was still a great attempt at all of this. And I thought to myself, you know, this might be the type of program, if it's fascinating my daughter in this way, that could really get the attention of other young children. 
but I really was doing it on the seat of my pants. I call it my innocent find. Well, on Monday morning, after that Super Bowl Sunday and many repeated viewings of Barney in my household, I called Cheryl Leach, who really was the woman who created the character Barney and was really starting to build it to the best she could in a limited fashion uh, in Texas and moving it out around the country. And I said to her, Cheryl, have you ever considered PBS? And she said, well, tell me more. And she really hadn't to that point and the rest is a long and involved and wonderful and uh, really distracting history because Barney became such a big part of my life for the next 18 years. But it was truly just a magnificent opportunity for me to put Connecticut Public Television on the national stage and really, in many ways, have the opportunity uh, to bring a cultural phenomenon to America. I never expected that was going to be what my career brought me to. But I enjoyed the ride. It was bumpy at times, as was discussed, of course, uh, in the documentary and that I discuss in my book. But it was just a marvelous opportunity. So Barney was canceled by PBS just after it went on the air. Why is that part of the story so little known? I don't think they even covered this in the documentary. Can you... Uh, well, thank you, Mike, because that was such an interesting story, and I really wish they had covered it, because I think there were a lot of things about the documentary that ended up going on side streets and taking detours, where the actual story of how did Barney get on the air, why was it canceled, how was it restored, and what was the ride like within public television, they really avoided or just didn't talk about all of that. And I must tell you, Anybody who sees the documentary on Peacock, and I'm in it for what, about two minutes or a minute and a half, and Leora is as well. The fact of the matter is I sat for three hours and I told them the story. And so, Amanda, you're interested and you're involved in media studies. I mean, that's the whole focus of documentaries. The documentarian comes in, they have their own view of what it is they're going to tell as a story. And they really don't want to depart too much from it, even if they learn something in the course of the interviews that might move them in another direction. Mm -hmm. So this notion of telling about the personal human pathos of uh, one of the creators uh, and their desire really to kind of titillate people with a little bit more about some of the activities about, say, David Joyner, the body of uh, Barney, who was so athletic and such a, an important part of the Barney story, the way it unfolded on air. And they wanted to tell about what happened and what he was involved with after the series. You notice, by the way, and I will get back to the cancellation point, Mike and Amanda, you noticed that they really didn't say that anything untoward ever happened on the set of Barney or that any of the kids were um, upset because of the way they were treated or anything. Within the confines of the PBS series, everything that went on was by the book. And yet they told a lot of stories that were not necessarily right to by the book. But with that said, that's their prerogative. I sat for the interview. And let me tell you the rest of the story because they cut it out. Mm -hmm. uh, we got on the air on April 6th, 1992, and on June 29th, 
because I talked to a reporter at the Hartford Current, and he documented it in a way that allowed me to uh, document it in my book, because I had forgotten some of the details. But I got a call from a PBS executive saying, Larry, you know, thanks for all the work. We gave you the $2.25 million, uh, PBS and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. But guess what? We're not going to renew Barney. And Barney was in competition with Sherry Lewis. I don't know if you recall her with Lamb Chop, her character. She comes way out of the 1950s and 60s. And Shining Time Station, which enveloped Thomas the Tank Engine. And so we were in competition with those two series. Now, PBS never guaranteed us a rose garden. They never told us that any of us necessarily would be continued beyond the first episodes that they funded. But they did imply that at least one or two of the series should be able to survive and go on to another season. So we were very hopeful. We were very expectant. But we were the least considered among the group because nobody knew who we were. They knew who Thomas the Tank Engine was. They knew Sherry Lewis, many of the media critics who looked at the series, but then do it with the opportunity to sit and watch it with a child. And so I think the people at PBS did not even understand what was building, how the ground was shaking, how local stations were beginning to get calls from parents saying, my child cannot get enough of this Barney. Who is this? What is this? Where can I see Barney? My child would love to go to a concert or to an appearance in my community in Baltimore or Miami or uh, Idaho, wherever it is. But PBS did not feel that. And our ratings were good, but it took us a little bit of time to build the ratings that we would ultimately have that were well competitive and in many cases surpassing any of the other children's programs on PBS. But I mounted a campaign once I was told that we were not going to be renewed. I hope I got the date right. It was actually May 29th. So it was a month and a half after we went on the air on April 6th. And then the annual meeting for PBS was taking place at the end of June in San Francisco. By then, we, Connecticut Public Television, the co-producer along with the Lions Group of the new Barney and Friends series, I brought Barney to Connecticut. We raised $50,000 on the air in one morning, when frankly, in that time slot, generally, we could expect to raise two or $3,000. Then I brought Barney over to the Hartford Civic Center for a little meet and greet and a concert. And we had not 600 people, we had 6,000 people. And it was the most incredible thing. We recorded it, video, videoed it for the rest of the country so other programmers could see it. And I sent it around to say, are you starting to feel what we are here in Connecticut about Barney? And all of a sudden, this groundswell of support began to take place. And in fact, word got back to PBS at the annual meeting. There were programmers who stood up and said to the chief program executive for PBS, what's going on with Barney? We hear that you're not going to be funding any more episodes. Now, the reason that nobody in the public knew about it was that we were still in the midst of our first run of the 30 episodes. 
And, you know, with children's programming, you can run it over and over again, not just twice a day, but you can take the 30 and then roll them all back. And the children really love to see it because repetition is such an important thing for a young child. In fact, that's why Barney was so successful. So many repetitive elements, Barney coming to life at the beginning of every show, the music was repetitive, and they love that. So by the end of the annual meeting, the chief program executive at the time said, I hear you. I hear you loud and clear, membership of PBS. And by the way, PBS is not a network like CBS, NBC, or ABC. And that's a critical element in all of this. It's the PBS system. It's not a network. It's public broadcasting service. Mm -hmm. Stations really control the dynamic. Having said that, and I know I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but we had given up control of programming to a chief program executive by this time because we were very worried that our decision-making process about programming in public television was way too slow with cable television being the important new force that it was becoming. So we said, instead of voting on new programs, and that's what we would do, we would go to a marketplace of programs and we would decide which ones to buy. And we always were critical of PBS saying, we need more new programs. And every time we had the opportunity to vote on new programs, we voted on the old ones. So that's why PBS has Masterpiece Theater and great performances and Frontline, all great you know, programs, but they're not new. They've been around for 40 or 50 years. But then when we gave control to the chief program executive, this was the first decision that she made in her new role with additional responsibilities. And it was the first one that ever was turned back by the membership. And I think to this day, it's probably still the only programming decision that this new chief program executive model has ever seen turned back. Wow, that's so fascinating. Um, I mean, my earliest memory is Barney. My brother, sister, and I, we were raised on Barney. So just listening to the history of it and the fact, like, it took so much to get it on the air. Wow. <laughs> well, let me say this, that there were many naysayers. There was a sense that maybe we were like Care Bears, that we really had no substance, that this was just all fluff and a lot of, uh, you know, attempts to market and merchandise. But really... The truth of the matter is that Kathy Parker, who was a partner to Cheryl Leach in the development of the series, along with Dennis DeShazer, uh, they had built it by looking at the marketplace and seeing what was working with things like We Sing, what was not working. And then they built a character to work, one that would work for this audience of young children, even going a little bit younger than Fred Rogers and Sesame Street. It had a linear storyline with each episode, and it was determined to do that uh, from the outset because we wanted it to be clear and uh, you know have guideposts for the child and have emotional, cognitive, and physically developmental activities going on in every episode. So we had folks at Yale University because we really needed to prove Barney's bona fides. So we commissioned a study at Yale 
And what they found, this children's laboratory there of children's television, is that Barney had over 100 learning moments in every episode. Now, to an adult, Amanda, they would not see that. They didn't really look at it that way because to them, they knew all this, <laughs> but the developing mind did not. And the developing mind wants something educational because the world to them is still this, un this mystery to be unlocked. And that's what Barney was able to do. The other thing that they said that I think was so impressive, they said that Barney is, quote, a nearly perfect preschool program. And so we knew that we were on target. We knew that this series worked on its own. Now, all of the marketing that took place later and all of the activities surrounding it and how it became pervasive in the culture, part of that is that my partners, the Lions Group, and I say this in the book and they understand what I was saying, I attempted to keep them from over-marketing the property because I felt that to make Barney really iconic, we had to protect it. But you know what happened? It wasn't just that they were pretty aggressive and good business people at marketing and they were for profit. But what happened was everyone in the society, if you recall, took Barney and profiteered from Barney. It was so big that you couldn't go to a gas station without seeing that Barney was going to be appearing there or a grocery store or you couldn't see, you know, at a bar, at a party, a birthday party for a three-year-old that there was going to be a Barney character, even though those characters were generally, or in most 99% of the cases, not the licensed property that we held on to. It was, in fact, uh, you know, someone who was profiteering off the fact that this was such a popular children's program. So it became almost too hot, if that's possible. Mm-hmm. So your book, No Dead Air, has a subtitle that you saved Barney from extinction. Um, what were you implying by that? I know you just mentioned like the process of getting him on PBS. Mm -hmm. Well, I did get him on PBS and I saved him <laughs> both. So, I mean, if you talk to Dennis DeShazer, in fact, I talked to him as late as uh, two days ago. And, you know, he always talks about my indispensability uh, to what happened. And it was interesting. I was listening to another podcast, a video one that a Barney fan uh, put on after the documentary, trying to explain what it was that the real fans of Barney were thinking about this documentary and where it was right and where it was wrong. I mean, it, it did get wrong, even the story of how it came to PBS. I mean, it gave me credit, of course, but they said that it was because I aired it locally and then it went nationally. And that's not the way it happened. But regardless, of what they said. The truth is that I did get it on the air and the truth is that I had to save it. And so I embarked on what I would call almost a political campaign to get people to look carefully at what was happening in their markets by virtue of what happened in Connecticut when we brought Barney uh, to us in early June. And when we brought him to the Civic Center, what we felt, what was happening with our ratings, because we were in the top 25 markets, so we could see our ratings every day. Only the large stations could. And so I mounted the campaign, even going right up until the annual meeting 
when I was jawboning <laughs> all the other programmers and encouraging them to step forward at the microphone. And I'll never forget, and I talk about it in the book, a tall, wonderful, angular man from Miami, John Felton, may he rest in peace. And John got up there bellowing with his voice saying, why aren't you going to be funding more of these Barney episodes? The show's doing great here in Miami. And so that started a lot of groundswell. So again, I was kind of manipulating all of the pushback that went on. And I was able to get them to say by the end of the meeting that they would come back and negotiate with us for another 18 episodes. And on we went with about 12 more seasons. But that was over a period of uh, 17, 18 years. So you mentioned seeing Barney at your local gas station, at the video store. Uh, you talked about the profiteering that was going on. Did you ever expect when you were first developing this show that it would become like a cultural phenomenon and kind of like a genre within itself? No, I really could never really think that far ahead. Uh, imagine this, Mike. I mean, we were just trying to get all the elements together, Connecticut Public Television. We sent cameras down. We sent editors down. We sent people to help the people at Lions Group get started. And it was exciting. I've got to tell you, if you read into the book that far, I talk about that whole year of what I call gestation, where I was imagining the possibilities for this series, but everything that occurred was so much bigger and so much more outsized than anything my fertile imagination about the success we might have could ever have put forward. Because how could I know? I mean, yes, I had a small focus group. Yes, everybody we showed the early episodes to thought it was wonderful if they had a two or three-year-old in the family. But what did that mean? And would stations really give it the opportunity? And would they put it in the right time slot? And would this groundswell that I was imagining in the best of my moods would occur. How could I know that that would happen? But I was working so hard, as were all the people in Texas, and they took it so seriously. We became a great melded team, and we knew that we thought we had something special. But I got to tell both of you, in January, before we went on the air, there's a thing called the press tour, and twice a year, people from all the networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS, have their moment. I don't even know what it's like today with streaming and cable. I, I have no idea. But at that time, everybody would have their day to showcase their new programs. So we went there, and we were asked to give a presentation. And Sherry Lewis did. And all the kind of middle-aged uh, people who were there as TV critics, they love Sherry Lewis and they would applaud. Oh, you know, Sherry, I grew up with you. Just like you, Amanda, said to me, you grew up with Barney. Well, they grew up with Sherry Lewis. So they were enamored and they thought, wow, Sherry Lewis is going to bust out of this group. There's no question. Or somebody who might have loved Thomas, Thomas the Tank Engine, read all the books, uh, again, British literature, how perfect for PBS. And then we came up and there weren't any children in the audience. There were only people of a certain age. Oh. And they looked at us like, oh, that's nice. This <laughs> dinosaur, but this ain't going to work. And they really cast us off 
saying, okay, they just threw that in. You know how you throw in something which doesn't belong and why, which was a Sesame Street thing. <laughs> and uh, they didn't get it. And they dismissed us. And PBS, you've got to understand, I mean, they dismissed us as well because the gentleman there at the time who greenlit the project for us uh, when we brought it to them was a man by the name of Jeff Gable. And by the time we got on the air, which was well over a year later, he had left. So we were, as I say in the book, orphaned at PBS. Nobody really believed in us. Nobody really said, hey, that was my idea uh, to green light this property. So we didn't have really a champion within PBS. And again, if you don't see this through the eyes of a child, because we did not write Barney to appeal to adults. And that was one of the issues I think that we faced throughout our entire lifetime is that uh, there were a lot of adults very skeptical who really couldn't put themselves back in the eyes and the mind of a child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember having, um, my first Halloween costume was a baby bop costume. Um, oh. And then I had like the baby bop plush. I loved her. And then Barney plush. And then my sister, who is a couple years younger than me, oh my God, she's going to be so embarrassed for me saying this, but she lost her Barney at a Toys R Us when she was super young. And the anguish that came out of her. <laughs> <laughs> my parents had to turn around and go back and find her, find her Barney. But I think they just ended up buying her a new Barney, which is not the same. Come on. <laughs> it was like, it was like a secret code. Like it was just something for kids yeah. and like adults, adults watch it and they, they don't get it. And like you said, it's for a developing mind. And Well, let me say this, that I do think that the pushback that we got, you know, I tried to answer because I knew that the Peacock documentary was going to focus a lot on pushback and about controversy to the best that they could develop it. So I added a new chapter, and I'm not certain if uh, you did receive that chapter because I, I did it after I had sent books to my publicist who then sent them to you. And in that chapter, I tried to answer why a lot of the pushback occurred. And let me tell you what my reasoning is. Number one, we were the first disruptor in many families. By that, I mean, a two-year-old or a three-year-old often wears hand-me-downs from the older child and watches up whatever the older child is watching. And so if the older brother or sister was into Power Rangers or whatever it might have been at the time, normally that little child had little say about what it was you know, that they were going to watch. When Barney came along, they said, hey, as you said, this is mine. This is my people, and I love this character, and I want as much of it as I can get. And that was an early disruption in many families. Secondly, it wasn't written on two levels for the adult. So if it wasn't really their cup of tea, they couldn't imagine why it was their child's in certain cases. Number three, there were a lot of men who looked at Barney and said, look, he's so allowing, he's so caring, he's so empathic. I really can't measure up to that. And I'm this child's dad. And look at this character is making me look bad because I'm upbraiding my child. I'm scolding them. I'm telling them not to do this. And Barney's saying, here, let's try this or let's work together on this. And so I think that was somewhat disruptive in the family as well. And then, of course, 
the child wanted everything associated with Barney. As you said, to rip Barney out of a child's hands was heresy and was an act of a great defiance, and the child would respond. And the child wanted the blankets, the child wanted the lunchbox, they wanted everything associated. So they became rather vocal in their need uh, to uh, have things associated with Barney. So a lot of those things, I think, played into the fact that we uh, really came into a household and uh, we took a lot of the things that were taken for granted about how long the child would stay really uh, kind of observant to whatever the older child or the parent wanted. And uh, soon they realized that uh, Barney kind of changed that equation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's just the marketing materials too. I remember I actually just went to the thrift store not too long ago and I found the same Barney plate that I grew up with. And I bought it because we have a nephew now. Um, and <laughs> so my parents have it. It's great. Pass it on to the younger generation. Yeah, well, people ask me, do you think Barney would work today? And I said, well, I don't really think the two and three-year-old mind has changed. Uh, I think what was appropriate in 1992 or 2000 or 2005 would work beautifully because you know the innocent mind they're not skeptical they're not cynical uh you know amanda and mike we're all living through a really difficult period in america and one where there is a lot of negativity and barney is just such an antithesis of that and but it can work at any time and in fact I don't know if you read this or saw that quote in the documentary, but I was, they liked this quote, so they kept it, where I said, Barney was really in many ways, Fred Rogers going electric. Yes. And by that I meant that Bob Dylan at the Newport Folk Festival in 1965 went from playing an acoustic guitar to an electric guitar. And many people in the audience were really disturbed uh, that their folk hero, Bob Dylan, was going electric. Well, in many ways, if you look at the ethos of Fred Rogers and then you look at Barney, they are one and the same. And in fact, I do point out in the book that I was on a panel at Yale because the singers, the two uh, people who looked at Barney, they were big fans of Fred Rogers. And that's why they really wanted to study Barney. And they thought that we were so in simpatico with what Fred was doing. But we brought more vivid colors. We brought more characters. We brought something different, even the musical underpinning, which really, when you go back, and I don't know if you, Amanda or Mike, have gone back to really look at a Barney episode now. I would imagine you're in your 30s. Am I wrong? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I hate to admit it, but you're right. <laughs> okay. Have you gone back to look at it? I just did the other night. I and? watched the first couple episodes. It all came back to me. It's crazy how it was something like I just completely forgot about. And then I found, I think like the four, there's like four hours worth of the first couple episodes on YouTube right now. And the the one that really stuck out to me is the space one with the little okay. alien. I remember <laughs> thinking it was so sad as a child, like, oh, she's leaving her friend, like her new friend, the alien. And as an adult, like I still was like, oh gosh, but it just got me thinking and kind of enraged on how society just kind of rejected Barney the way it did. Well, it did on some level, but let's not, I don't want to play into the fact that uh, the, I love you, you hate me, the documentary on Peacock did focus so much on that because I'm going to be honest with you. 
when we were going through it at uh, public television as a co-producer, we weren't feeling that at all. What we were feeling was the love and the impact on the system and all the money that the PBS system was benefiting from because uh, parents uh, wanted to have things that were associated with Barney. And we had unique pledge items that we were offering. And the way that local underwriting would come because there was such great viewership and just the intensity of the experience for the intended audience and how well we were doing our job. Whether anybody didn't understand it or didn't appreciate it, Barney worked on so many levels. It was such a modern day success that that's what we were focused on. Now, if there were kids on the campus of the University of Nebraska who were doing terrible things or the San Diego chicken at games of the Padres, I mean, that's another thing. Mm -hmm. But it did not deter us in our mission. And obviously we were successful or there would not have been any pushback there would not have been the positive and negative feedback. It just became so much a part of the culture. And let's be honest about it. Most public television programs, as good as they are, and obviously I was a fan of public television, a purveyor of public television, and I'm so grateful that I was the head of programming for a network in a state like Connecticut that so much appreciated public television. But having said that, I mean, when you think about it, how many shows really break out of the public television cocoon where they're comfortably placed and become part of the cultural dialogue? Very few. Yeah. So kind of changing gears here, um, me and Mike, we're from Chicago here. So we have WTTW as our PBS station. Oh, yeah. I know and, a lot of people there. Dan yeah. was the programmer for many years. Yeah, um, I actually had a professor, too, that we did a couple programs for them um, on campus called Respond to Violence. And PBS is such a broad network. And I remember, too, the campaigns that in between the shows they would have. You were the programming executive for one state's PBS, uh, excuse me, PBS network, which is Connecticut. How did you find yourself in a position of managing this remarkable property? Well, PBS is different, as I said, than other networks. So by virtue of the way we were established, back as part of the great society, really, I don't think people really think about that, but the PBS system as it now exists uh, is, is really a great society program that Lyndon B. Johnson put together. But he said at the time that he put forward uh, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the PBS system. He said, you know, I know that I'm leaving undone at the moment the whole idea of how we are going to fund public television going forward, because I think it's really important to recognize that the public broadcasters in Britain or other major European countries or Japan, they were always the primary and the first broadcasters. So when you think about Britain, let's say, what comes to mind? The BBC. But in America, we were an afterthought. We came along many years after NBC, CBS, and ABC. So what existed before PBS? Because there were frequencies set aside for these channels, but WNET and WGBH, not even WTTW or KQED in San Francisco, but the two behemoths in the system were in Boston and New York. 
And Connecticut Public Television, guess what? Take out a map. <laughs> we're right between Boston and New York. And we were told if you were going to get involved in national programming, and it's very risky to get involved in national programming because you can lose a lot of money. You know, programming uh, sometimes works and sometimes doesn't, but it's a crapshoot. And nobody can say with certainty what really is going to be the next big thing. And Barney was the next big thing, but who knew? And, and he obviously PBS didn't or they wouldn't have canceled us. But with that said, all programming emanates from a local station or from a local station with an independent producer or with an independent producer alone, not with PBS. Is that a mistake? Well, I think it is a mistake in many ways now because of the way that uh, media is uh, developing. But having said that, WGBH and WNET had already established production facilities under the rubric of the National Educational Television. Go back and take a look at that old logo for NET. And they said, look, we will agree to this new entity called PBS, but they cannot produce programming. That has to remain the domain of stations because they had built out a lot of capacity. I don't know if you watched the uh, series on HBO about Julia Child and how that came about at WGBH, but that was in the early days of NET, ultimately leading to PBS. So with that said, all programming has to originate somewhere, but there are many stations that decide it's too risky to get into the national game. But because we were between Boston and New York, we had a study done by the vaunted management group, McKinsey and Company. And they said, you know, Connecticut, because of where you're located, you could pick up a lot of things that come off the table at WNET and WGBH because the producer doesn't really want to work with them. Their oversight is too great. The requirements from them financially are too great. And you really have an opportunity here, but you can't get involved in programming that is right at the early stages. You have to get involved at a stage commensurate with your capabilities. So Barney turned out, to be the perfect vehicle for us. Why? Because it had already been developed. All of the costs that were sunk in the development of the character were already sunk. So there was no risk on our part to bring it forward and then to go forward at PBS. And in fact, I think I mentioned that we got 2.25 million for the first season, but that was matched by our partners who deficit financed a portion of the series but we, Connecticut, took no risk. And that was the perfect model for Connecticut public television at the time. So when, when I see Barney, obviously to me, he's a dinosaur, uh, but he's also a man in a suit. You've described him as a unicorn. Could you elaborate on that, please? Well, obviously he is a softened uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. When I say a unicorn, I mean, he broke every rule he broke uh, every convention. Again, we pushed back on the program executive and their decision-making, and we got it back on the air. Uh, we were outside of the normal channels. Uh, you know, there were a couple of major children's producers. We were not one of them, but we pushed our way into uh, that crowd, and we were not always as welcomed as I would like. 
we broke out in ways that no one could ever have imagined. And we became, as I say, part of the conversation. And then, you know, there was a lot of pushback about us saying, did PBS make a good deal? And, you know, I thought the documentary could have really gotten into this. Now, they originally were hoping for three hours from Peacock. They only got two. And they asked me an awful lot about a thing called Barney Gate. Now, everything after Watergate, you know, that was a scandal, uh, was given the name something gate. And so Barney Gate was the fact that there were some Republican leaders in the House and Senate who said, why doesn't Barney fund public television? And, you know, this has been a mantra since we began. And if you go back and your students of media and take a look at Fred Rogers' testimony before a congressional committee at the dawn of PBS, and it took Fred Rogers, and this was to a Democratic uh, committee led by a Democrat, uh, John Pastor of Rhode Island. And after Fred Rogers testified about the impact that his show was having on children across America who were being denied quality educational programming anywhere else, they said, that's it. Thank you, Fred Rogers. Let's continue funding public television. But we have been under the threat of losing the minuscule amount of money that the public really does invest through the government in public broadcasting since the day we were established. There's been a threat to, to withhold funding for one reason or another, whether it was Tongues Untied, which was about gay uh, issues, uh, whether it was about uh, Tales of the City, again, about gay issues, whether it was about Sesame Street recently and characters who were encouraging vaccines, whatever it may be, there's always been this attempt to find a reason not to fund public television. Well, in this case, it was, well, why didn't you make a better deal and get all the money for Barney? Well, number one, we didn't establish the character. It had been established by a for-profit partner. But you know, the problem with that argument is, number one, PBS did not believe in Barney enough to even want to fund a second season, let alone to own the whole thing. So what does owning a property mean as opposed to buying rights to a series? Think about this. If you want to own a property, you take a risk. Now, if PBS bet on every series that it initially funded to put on the air for that express purpose, oh, we did get back-end revenue. And uh, recently, I had to push back on the executive producer of that documentary who said, you know, in the trade publication that PBS has called Current, he said, Larry Rifkin was the guy who saved Barney. And Larry Rifkin was the, but I wish he had made a better deal as it relates to the financial benefit that Connecticut Public Television got from Barney. Well, let me tell you that he really didn't understand the deal. And we did get ancillary uh, rights in terms of monetary rights uh, to various pieces of the whole Barney uh, packaging. We also got a representation fee. We got portions of underwriting. In other words, over the life of Barney, Connecticut Public Television benefited to the tune of about $10 million. Now, maybe in the sweep of all of this, that's not a great amount of money. But having said that, if you read where the Elvis year for Barney was 1993, 
and hundreds of millions of dollars in licensed merchandise had been sold. If you think that that all went to the Lions Group, it did not. It went to a lot of people who were risking their capital to put out products, and a portion of that went to the Lions Group, but not the whole by any means. My, my long and the short of it is, everyone who touched Barney in any material way, whether it was Connecticut Public Television, PBS, the PBS stations, by virtual of all the money that they raised around Barney over the years, whoever it was, did well. Some did better than others, but they had invested in that. If PBS invested, let's say, have you ever heard of a series called The Puzzle Place? I'm just wondering. Yes. Okay, you have. Mm -hmm. But it did not succeed in the dramatic way that some had hoped. And yeah, we didn't if, watch that. If PBS put forward 10 million or 20 million at the beginning to say, we want to own everything about this, we want to take all the rights that the person who developed it, Lancet Media, and I know those folks, you know, they would have lost their shirt. With Barney, they really invested little in relative terms and they got incredible benefit. But was it everything uh, that Barney became? No. But was that really the purpose of putting it on the air? No, it was because it was a great educational program for young children. Absolutely. And, you know, we're actually running out of time, but Larry, I could just ask you all these questions. <laughs> it was such a pleasure having you on here. Um, also, I just want to tell my viewers again, please check out his book, go and check out his website. Larry, thank you so much for coming on. Really, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. And by the way, in the book, you'll also learn how we brought women's sports to a national audience by virtue of the success we had with the most successful local franchise in PBS history, uh, UConn Women's Basketball. So uh, I think that's a really interesting part of my story as well. Yes, that's awesome. Yeah, I see that in your uh, biography. Just your career is astounding. And like I said, as somebody who went through college as a media studies major, I love listening to people's journeys and their careers in regards to this. So thank well, you. I just want everyone to know that it was really serendipitous that there were a lot of people along the way who believed in me more than I even believed in myself. And I think sometimes that's even more important because you really get some uh, torque of behind your own career when others really believe in you. And uh, again, for anybody who's aspiring to go into media, I think uh, my story might lend them some encouragement. Absolutely. Larry, thanks again. And guys, um, I really appreciate you guys tuning into this very special episode. I know the kids that are our age now are going to really appreciate hearing Larry's story of Barney. So I hope you guys have a great rest of the week.